following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. The Cashman's down in Texas in August. Texas in August reminds me of a, of a story. A Texan died and found himself in hell. And Satan, of course, likes to keep things pretty warm there. The Texan noticed the thermostat was 90 degrees, the humidity was 80%. And he said, it's great, just like Texas in July. So Satan says, I'll fix him. He turns up the thermostat to 110. The humidity is now 98%. Texan says, I love it, just like Texas in August. Satan says, I know what I'll do. He turns the thermostat down to minus 20. Hell literally freezes over Texan gets this glum, depressed look, and then all of a sudden he brightens up. He looks at hell frozen over. He says, the Rangers just won the World Series. Before we read our text, a quick tutorial on how we study the Scripture. God actually has a verse in the Bible that I believe gives us a formula for Bible study. It's Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. I'm going to read that to you. It says, They read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Again, again, they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. I believe this is God's formula for Bible study. Three steps outlined here. Number one, observe it. Observe what the text says. What is the plain meaning of the text? Second, interpret it. What does it mean? What does it mean in light of who the book was written to, when it was written, and the culture of that time? So that's the second. uh, First step, observe it. Second, interpret it. Finally, we're going to apply it. We're going to apply it. What does this scripture mean to me today? How am I to live this out? Now, I bring this up because this text that we're about to talk about, 1 Corinthians 11, it's kind of quirky, it's kind of dense, it's, it's a little weird, and as we read this, something we want to keep in mind, we always interpret the text in terms of them, in terms of them, the people this text was written to, we're always going to apply it in terms of us. In other words, how do we live this out? And I'll give you a clue before we even begin, we're going to live this out very differently than they did because our culture is quite different than theirs was. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Paul writing, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. He's saying, I taught you the Scriptures, and you're actually doing it. Bravo. You know, they're, they're actually living it out. Then he switches gears here in verse 3. He says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, The head of woman is man. Here's where we start to get into difficult territory. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, meaning her hair cut very short. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. 
For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the Dodgers. No, actually it says because of the angels. <laughs> I just put that in there. Uh, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? We'll talk about what that meant in their culture. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And if we ever needed you in understanding a scripture, God, it is certainly now. We ask you to open this to our understanding. Pray, give us hearts that are open to whatever you would have us do in response to what you want to teach us from this scripture. We know that the scripture is not in the Bible by accident. Neither are we here this morning by accident. You have something you want to say to each of us through this text this morning. And we pray, Lord, bring it on in Jesus' name. Amen. So lots of questions as we read this text. Lots of kind of quirky, unusual things. Let's walk through this by subject matter. The first subject that Paul addresses here is headship. What is headship? Headship is God's design for authority and submission. God's design for authority and submission. And Paul in verse 3 gives us three examples of headship. He starts by saying, the head of every man is Christ. We know the Bible says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of course, the, the Bible is clear that those who do that in this life, their destination is heaven, sin's forgiven, they have a relationship with God. But those who refuse to do that in this life, who won't bow to Christ, who won't confess Him as Lord, uh, they will still do these things in eternity. They'll still bow the knee and they'll still confess that He's Lord, but they won't be in heaven. And so the Bible is clear that there's an urgency to making Jesus our Lord, because that's the only way that our sin can be forgiven. We can enter into that relationship with God and that we can spend eternity in heaven. So the second example Paul gives of headship, he says the head of woman is man. We're going to skip that one and come back to it. Put that off for a second. The third example of headship, it says the head of Christ is God. The Bible teaches that there's God is a trinity, three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that each of these three persons is equal, and each of these three persons is God. And in a mystery we don't quite understand, these three persons make up one God. But here's the question if Christ is equal to the Father, why would Christ say, or why would it say the head of Christ is God? Well, it has to do with headship, God's design for authority and submission. You see, what we have to realize is our idea of authority and submission is all twisted and tweaked because we live in a fallen world and we see a lot of abuse of authority and abuse of submission. But in God's kingdom, those things are still pure. Um, in God's kingdom, uh, uh, authority is always exercised sacrificially. It's always exercised in love. The uh, overarching goal of the person in authority is to do the very, very best for the person who's under authority. Authority in God's kingdom is never used for selfish benefit. And in God's kingdom, submission is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
Jesus often spoke of his submission to the authority of the Father. He said, I only do, I only say what the Father tells me to. And then the Father always points people to the Son rather than to himself. He says, this is my Son, listen to him. And the Holy Spirit never glories in his own power. He wants people to glory in Jesus. So in the, in the Trinity, we see this perfect equality, and yet the, still the, the submission of each member of the Trinity submitting to the other members. So Paul says the head of woman is man. We're going to come coming back to that now. The word used for man there in Greek means man. It doesn't mean husband. So this brings up the question, are women to be submissive? Are they to be under authority to every man in society? Well, here's the answer to that, I believe. The context of this passage is the activities of men and women in the church and in the marriage relationship. Paul is not making a statement about the role of women in society at large. In fact, Personally, I don't see anything in the Bible that really talks about the roles of men and women in society. For example, I don't see anything in the Bible that would say a woman can have this career or can't have this career. I don't see any of that in the Bible. And you know, when the Bible's silent, those who teach the Bible need to be silent. We don't want to come up with some doctrine that is not found in the Scripture. The Bible does, however, delineate roles for men and women in the church and in the marriage relationship. We're going to take marriage first. Ephesians chapter 5 starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Some of the husbands are saying, sure glad I brought the little woman here today, you know. But men, we're getting to you now. Here's your, here's your turn. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So God has just one command for the woman and one command. I mean, the books, thousands of books have been written about marriage, right? God really just has one thing to say to the wife, one to the husband. Here it is, to the wife, submit to your husband, live under his authority. To the husband, God says, die for your wife, die to your plans, your pleasures, your priorities. In other words, live your life entirely for her. And here's why this actually does work. I see some men smiling in the way that is, but um, I, and here's why this actually does work. The number one need of the woman in marriage is to know that above all else, her husband loves her supremely and has her best interests at heart. The number one need of the man in marriage is to know that he has the respect of his wife. How does he know that? He knows that because she follows him. She submits to his direction. So here's how this plays out in real life. When the woman knows, when the wife knows that her husband loves her supremely, has her best interests at heart, and, and if the husband comes home and says, honey, we need to move to Alaska, right? She might be thinking, you know, that's not on my bucket list. I never had that in my mind ever, uh, but... You know, I, my husband loves me. I know he has my best interest at heart. I will follow him. That's how that plays out. And, and for the man, when, the, when he knows that the wife respects him and follows him, he's going to lay down his life for her. So this is how this plays out. Now let's talk about kind of the, the reality of the, uh, uh, the command that God has. Even if your spouse is not doing what God commands them to do, if you just begin to do what God commands you to do, what's it going to do? 
it's going to provoke a response from your spouse. Why? Because you will be meeting their greatest need. And that's going to provoke some kind of response. That's going to make a dramatic improvement in the marriage relationship if just one person begins to do what God commands them to do. So the woman's role in marriage is submission to her husband. But notice, just as Jesus submits to the authority of the Father, yet is equal to the Father in the same way, the wife is submitting to the husband, but is completely equal to the husband. And, 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 and husbands, as God gives you authority in this marriage relationship, that authority is never to be exercised in a spirit of superiority, but rather in a spirit of humility. Your life goal and life work is to serve your wife in every area. I didn't even hear any amends to that. Um, and let's talk about what the Bible has to say about the woman's role in the church. Because, you know, we're going in and out of these roles and, and, uh, in this chapter. And so we're going to talk about the, the woman's role in the church. 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul writes this, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, in addition to that, there's other scriptures in 1 Timothy and in Titus talking about the qualifications for elders. And it seems clear from those passages that uh, it, those are roles reserved for men. So it, from these scriptures... I would conclude these things. And I would encourage you, search the scriptures, study yourself, see what you think. But, but here's the conclusions I come to about the role of women in the church. Number one, a woman is not to teach men or have authority over men, but a woman can absolutely teach women, have authority over uh, women and children, teach children as well. Number two, I don't believe a woman is to fill the role of elder because I believe the scripture says otherwise. And number three, I don't believe a woman should be the lead pastor of a church, but... I personally believe a woman can have a pastoral role as long as she's not exercising authority over a man or teaching a man. Do you have any questions on that? See, Brian. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to get a vacation. I come back. And, okay, the next subject Paul addresses here is head coverings, verses 4 to 10. The head covering spoken of here is a scarf or a shawl. And the woman that Paul refers to is an adult female, not a girl. But we want to keep in mind, Paul is not giving an ordinance for today. He's addressing a social custom that existed in the city of Corinth in the first century. And he's saying, okay, here's how we're going to, here's how we're going to deal with that custom in the church. Now, in the first century, a woman would not think to go out in public without her scarf or her shawl. Why? Because the only people who did that were prostitutes. So this was actually a symbol of purity. You, you wear the, the scarf of the shawl, you'd be saying, I'm not a prostitute. But it meant something else. Shawl had another meaning. It was similar to a wedding ring, and it was a symbol of marriage because most of these adult women were married, and so they wear the shawl, and they're married, and so it, it came to be a symbol of marriage. But even beyond that, it, because in that culture, women lived in submission to their husbands, it came to be a symbol of submission in marriage. And that's really the way that Paul's using it here to denote submission of the woman to the authority. Uh, I know some women are rolling their eyes, but, but uh, to denote a submission of the woman to the authority of her husband. And, and that, that's how Paul is using it here uh, in, in this scripture. Uh, as, as we see it here is that he's talking about, about that context. And then he's, he's also saying, well, that would be inappropriate for a man to wear that head covering because it's a symbol of submission to the husband, it, it just wouldn't work for the man. So, so that's what he's talking about there. Now we come to verse 10, which has to be, in my mind, you know, maybe one of the most oddball verses in the Bible. It says this. It says, For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head 
because of the angels. What on earth does that mean? Well, I believe the key to this is, is found in Job chapter 38. In that chapter, God is speaking to Job, and, and you know the book of Job goes on and on about Job's sufferings and all the weird theories his friends have and all this stuff. But it finally gets to the point that God speaks to Job, and, he, and, and he's, he's rebuking Job for some of the things that Job has said and all that, but, but he comes to this place of saying, Job, were you there when I created everything? Well, of course, the answer is no, but, but here's what he says to Job. This is Job 38, verse 7. The Lord says to Job, where were you? When the morning stars sang together, morning stars believed to be a reference to angels, and all the sons of God, that's definitely a reference to angels, Genesis 6, shouted for joy. So here is what's being said. Where were you, Job, when the angels of God sang praises and the angels shouted for joy when God created everything? What we learn from this is that when, when God created the earth and when he created Adam and Eve, the angels were witnesses of all that. They were there. And so... Because of that, the angels observed the roles that God had ordained for men and women. Uh, now, the Bible says this. It says that in order to prove something to be true, you need witnesses. In fact, God says if you're going to prove something to be true, you need at least two or three witnesses to establish the truth of that. So here's the point of all this. We've grown up in a fallen world, and so we've got some wrong ideas about the roles of men and women because of the world we live in and our upbringing and all that kind of stuff. But what God wants to do here is to prove to us what are the true God-ordained roles for men and women. And what he's doing in order to prove the truth of that is he's calling witnesses. In this case, not two or three people. He's calling two or three million angels who are eyewitnesses to creation. And very importantly, what they saw about these roles of men and women they saw what they were like before sin entered the world and corrupted the roles that men and women have. And so it's very important that, that what's being said here is the angels are the witnesses. They saw the true deal, what it's really supposed to be like, and, and that's what's being referred to here. Okay, next subject Paul talks about is hair length. Now, men's and women's bodies, God made them different, right? I mean, I think we'd all, we'd all agree with that. The physiology of women's hair and men's hair is different. Now, hair growth has three stages. It's got the first stage, number one, is formulation and growth. The second stage is resting. And then the final stage is it's fallout. It's, it's fallout. It's, uh, you know, we, it, but the, the male testosterone hormone speeds up these cycles so that men get to the fallout stage much sooner than women do. Women's uh, uh, estrogen hormone causes their, their hair to remain in this growth stage almost their entire life. That's why you rarely see a bald woman. So because women's hair stays in this growth stage longer, their hair grows longer than, than men's grow throughout their life. And so that's what Paul's referring to. He says, well, does not even nature itself teach you that men's hair won't typically be as long as a woman's hair? That's, that's what he's getting at. Now, once again, we interpret these scriptures in light of the culture that existed when they were written. And so in that time, apparently it wasn't that common for men to have very, very long hair, but it also was not common for women to have very short hair. Why? Because in that Jewish culture of the time, uh, if a woman was convicted of adultery, uh, her hair would be cut short or shaved, and so that would be shameful. So women wouldn't typically wear their hair that way because people would think, oh, what does that happen to you or whatever. So, so here's the application for us. In that time and culture, your hair length sent certain messages to people. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and today in our world, uh, our, our fashion choices 
send some messages to people. And so when we make those choices, we want to keep in mind that how we dress, hair, and all those things are going to have some kind of reflection on us, on, on Christianity and ultimately on Christ. And so we just want to make those decisions in light of that. Final subject Paul addresses is contention. Contention. Verse 14, he says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now you could interpret this in two ways, and it hangs on what does that word custom refer to? Does custom refer to head coverings? Or does it refer to contentiousness? Now, I don't believe it refers to head coverings because Paul has written passionately for most of these 15 verses talking about head coverings. Why would he suddenly say, oh, well, it doesn't matter? No, it, it obviously does matter, at least to the people he's talking to, because he goes on and on about it. So I don't think that fits the context. And something else, the idea in Greek of a person that's contentious, it's not just somebody that disagrees. It's somebody who wants to pick a fight. So here's what I think Paul is saying. Hey, if you want to pick a fight about this, we're not in fights here. That's not what the church of God is all about. We're not about fights and, and disputes and arguing. That, that's not what we're about. You know, years ago in Calabasas, I know we've got a few people here that were here in those days, but had this guy visit the church occasionally, and every time after church, he would come up with this long list of complaints, you know, like the service, I didn't like the worship, I didn't like the message. Well, that's understandable. But, you know, he'd go on and on with, with the, the problems that he was having uh, with everything. And, uh, you know, eventually I just prayed, Lord, I, this guy's obviously not happy here. Could you, like, move him on to another church where he might be happy? You know, probably a selfish prayer. But anyway, so I'm, I'm praying the guy would leave. And then it turns out this other guy in the church is calling the guy up saying, hey, I haven't seen you. Why don't you come on back to the church, you know? And so anyway, so this guy, this guy keeps coming and he keeps, you know, complaining every week. And so finally I prayed to the Lord. I said, what should I do? And the Lord says, well, you know the real problem? This guy's involved in pornography, and, and he's beating his wife. And, and so anyway, the next time a guy comes to church, and he's going through his list after church, all these things. And I, I said, could I share you what the Lord said? And I told him, he goes, the Lord hit the nail on the head. But, but here's, here's the point, and it'll happen to you if it hasn't already. The darkness hates the light, the gospel says. And, and so the person that's walking in darkness, they often will lash out. It's somebody in the light. Could be a Christian, could be a pastor, could be somebody. I'm sure Brian's got stories like this about people just lashing out. And, and that's because the darkness hates the light because your light exposes the evil in their life and they get very uncomfortable and so they start, start coming at you. So that's what I think Paul's hinting at when he talks about contentiousness. There, there's some folks that that's the only reason they're there is just to you know, come up with some, some problems and complaints. But let's say you have a legitimate complaint. You go, you visit some church somewhere, not here, not talking about here, visit some church somewhere and they say, you know, they got all these statues of Mother Teresa and they want me to bow down to Mother Teresa. And I don't see that in my Bible. And what should you do? Well, Matthew 18 gives you a course of action for problems that, that come up either between you and someone else or, or, the, or someone in the church. And, and, and so if you have a biblical basis for your problem, I'm not just talking about your opinion. You think Tom ought to sing longer or louder or something. I don't mean that. I'm talking about something biblical that, that you have a problem with in the church. You need to go to the pastor, an elder, uh, somebody in authority, and not just if you feel like it, because God's name's on the door. If there's something really wrong there, God wants to take care of it and clean it up. Now, if you have some kind of personal agenda, vendetta, axe to grind, you, God probably is not going to send you. He's probably got somebody else he can send who doesn't have that agenda. And so if you've got that thing going on, 
eh, it's probably not your calling to go do that. But if there's something radically wrong in a church, that you've, I think God would have you deal with it. In love, you're going to come. I mean, because obviously they're, they're trying to serve the Lord, but maybe they're off base somewhere. And so, so tell them. Now let's get down to the nitty-gritty. What's, what's the main application of this text for us? We've got a lot of details here and stuff, but obviously a lot of this isn't for us because it was customs of the time. But what's the main application of this text for us? Well, it's not about covering our head but it is about honoring our head, honoring Christ, our head. But how do we do that? Well, think about the physical body. How does the, the, how does the physical body honor the head? Well, the physical body honors the head by obeying the head and by giving expression to the head. Obeying the head, giving expression to the head. For example, obeying. Our physical body obeys the head. If my brain says, scratch my nose, the finger doesn't say, well, you know, it, it's oily and there's a pimple. I, I want to... No, they just, it just obeys, just obeys the, the head. The brain says, do it. The hand, hand does it. So that's one thing. But something else about our physical body. Our physical body gives expression to the head. If my brain says, mouth, I want you to tell my wife that she's pretty. The mouth doesn't go, well, you know, I'm tired. I don't feel like talking. No, it, the, the mouth gives physical expression. The body gives expression to what's in the brain, what's in the head. And, and the point being for us, the entire purpose for our existence is to obey God and to give expression to Him. And we could put that another way. That two goals for our life. Number one would be restraint, another word for obedience. The second would be revelation, giving expression to our God, our spiritual head. Jesus is not on this earth in a physical body. I mean, they've seen Elvis at Kmart. I don't think anybody saw Jesus there yet. You know, He's not on the earth right now. So if Jesus wants to give somebody a hug, how is that possible? It's going to be you giving them a hug. In other words, how is Jesus going to show his love? How are people going to know what he's like? It's going to be through you. You're going to give expression to your physical head, to Christ. You're going to put him on display. So what happens when we obey him and we display him? Well, the Bible would say that we give him glory. We're giving him glory. And how did Jesus give glory to the Father? Well, Jesus tells us that in John chapter 17. Don't turn there. We're just going to read a couple of verses. But John 17 is Jesus' prayer to the Father at the end of his earthly ministry. And I'd suggest to you that if those things were important at the end of Jesus' earthly life, they're also the same things that are important at the end of our earthly life. In fact, for the judgment of the believer, which is not a judgment as to uh, sin or anything, it's a judgment as to reward, I think John 17 is going to be the basis for that. But anyway, in John 17, Jesus says this in verse 4 to the Father. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, I've glorified you on the earth. But how did Jesus do it? Well, he tells us here, verse 6 there, he says, I've manifested your name to the men you have given me. In other words, Jesus put the Father on display. He let people know what the Father's character was, was like, what he was all about. Verse 8, he says, I've given them your word. Verse 9, I pray for them. So Jesus, he gave glory to his head by doing these three things. And it's the same way that we give glory to our head, Jesus Christ. These same three things. We manifest his character to those God has given us. We give them God's word and we pray for them. Let's take that first one. Manifesting God to the people God has given you. Do you know who those people are who God has given you? Well, certainly the first one would be your spouse. That's the first person God has put in your life. What about your children, neighbors, co-workers, friends, relatives? These are the people God has given you. There may be others, but these are the people God has given you. He wants you to manifest Him. He wants you to show Him off to them. How do you do that? Through your life, by giving them your word, 
and by praying for them. Ephesians 5 tells us as husbands, we're to wash our wives in the water of the word. How do we, how do, we do that? We read them the Bible. You know, if you're not in the habit of doing that, find a time of day with your, with your spouse where you can read the Bible together. It's powerful stuff. Sadly, the divorce rate among people who claim to be Christians is about 50%. It's about the same as the people who don't claim to be Christian. But among those who pray together regularly, and I would add, have some kind of devotion, reading God's Word together, it's like 1%. You can re- get it on the web, these studies. So the point is those who pray together, study together, they stay together. What about your kids? Deuteronomy 6 says, tell your kids about the Lord. As you go about your daily activities, as you get up, as you go to bed, as you walk along the road, talk to your kids about the Lord. You know, uh, you've got a lot of time with your kids in the car. Typically, we don't walk on the road. We typically drive on it now. But, but we've got time in the car with the kids. Now, something I've been doing as we drive to church is just pick one doctrinal thing about God. You know, maybe grace or forgiveness or love or, you know, whatever. And just talk about, well, what do you know about that? Maybe what has God done in your life or give him your testimony. I mean, we've got great, we've got a captive audience there in the car with the kids. We can tell them. Deuteronomy 6 says, you just want to constantly be talking to them about the Lord. So read the Bible to your kids too. You know, they're little, you've got the little picture books and stuff. As they get older, keep reading them the Bible. You're going to come across everything they'll ever need to know just by going through the Bible. So we give glory to our head. We show off our God by showing off our God, giving out his word and praying, praying for people. Some years ago, I'm standing in a, a parking lot in Calabasas. A man approached me. I, I'd never met him before. And somehow he knew as a pastor and he said, hey, would you pray for me? And then he began to explain that he left his wife to go live with this other woman. And then she left him and he wanted to get back with his wife and his four kids. And so he asked me to pray for that. So, you know, something wonderful happens when we pray for someone who's not yet decided to, uh, to put their faith in Christ. You know, they see that we have a relationship. They, they listen and they hear that we have a real relationship with God. And they also see that we really believe that God's going to do these things that we ask him to do. And, and this is powerful stuff. So anyway, I prayed with this guy. A couple weeks later, I'm in the parking lot, another parking lot in Calabas. The guy approached me. I think he was stalking me. But uh, anyway, he comes up to me. This time he prays to receive the Lord. Now, after that, I prayed for this guy for a long time. He gave me the names of his wife. and kids. I don't know where he lived, but I just I got that info. I just started praying for him. After a while, the Lord said, he's back. He's back with his wife and kids. I mean, how beautiful How beautiful is that? And, and we, the point is we give glory to our head, Jesus Christ, by showing them off to people and by, by giving them his word and, and praying for them. Some time ago, I was at a trade show, and I had a meeting with a man from Japan, and uh, as we're sitting and talking, I, I noticed something was hanging out of his nose. And, and uh, you know, as he would exhale, this thing would, you know, pop out. And, and then he'd inhale, go back up again. And, you know, I'm watching this thing kind of go up and down. And, you know, I'm sitting there and, and uh, I'm thinking, well, I really should say something. But, you know, I don't know what to say. And I'm not sure how it's going to translate. And, well, I was, you know, as I'm thinking about that, he reaches up and he, he does this with his finger on his nose, and suddenly the thing's on his cheek, this big thing is hanging, and I'm thinking, oh, I really should do something, and what should I do? And I, It's crazy things occur to you. I thought, hell, I could point up the sky. Oh, look, Superman. He looks up. I could grab it off his cheek. And, you know, but anyway, in the end, I didn't know what to do, so I didn't do anything. We left, said goodbye, and it's still there on his... I, you know, I'm sorry, but I for, forgive me, God. But anyway, we're told in our passage honor our head to, to bring them glory and 
it's not like we don't know what to do. We do know what to do. We just need to do it. We, you know, God is clear. Now, here's my tendency. Perhaps it's yours. Here's my tendency. I will obey you, God. I will submit to you in everything except this one little area. In that area, God, it's just, it's just not convenient to me. It's not pleasant to me to submit to you in that, everything else except this one area. I won't, I won't, I won't do it. And I want to show you a man from the Bible who had that exact same mindset. His name is Achan. And this is when the Israelites were, were beginning to enter the promised land. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you victory in the city of Jericho. You're going to win that battle. This is the gateway to the promised land. You're going to win that battle. And when you do, there's going to be all, this, all these goodies, the spoil, the loot, the swag. But I don't want you to touch that. Don't touch that stuff. That's for me. You've you got to give it to God. And this guy Achan... He was mostly obedient. God said, go into battle. He rushed into battle. God said, fight. He fought. But then he sees the gold. He sees the silver. He sees the beautiful clothing. And he says, you know, I want to keep some of that for myself. Hides it under his tent. What happened to that guy? Well, God's judgment on him was that he and his sons and daughters would be executed. Maybe they had something to do with this whole scheme. I don't know. But the point is that there's always a tremendous price to pay when we refuse to submit to our head, Jesus Christ, in even some seemingly small area of our life. A man I know lives in another state, had committed adultery against his wife. She forgave him. It happened again. She didn't forgive him. She divorced him. So he ends up single. He was a believer. He had stumbled badly, but he was a believer. And he kept falling into the sin of fornication, which is defined as relations with someone you're not married to. So I asked him, I said, have you ever told the Lord that you don't want to commit this sin? And he said, no, I, I never, never did. But, but that is how we're supposed to live this Christian life. The Lord will be faithful to show us those unsubmitted areas of our life, right? Those areas where we go, everything but this. God's going to be faithful to show us those. And then our, our role in that is to then bring those things under his headship, to submit those to this authority. Say, God, would you make me obedient in these areas? In other words, his job by his spirit is, uh, is to identify those areas of our life. And then by his power, I ask him, and he's going to crucify my flesh in that area. He's going to deal with that thing. And so we honor Christ, our head, by giving him authority in every area of our life, not holding anything back. Consider Hannah. Hannah, as you know, you know the Bible story, she was, she was childless. And to be childless in that time, there was a lot of shame connected with that, because in Israel, in the time of Hannah, people believed if you were childless that God was cursing you because of some vile sin. So Hannah had to deal with not only the pain of being childless, she also had to deal with the shame of what everybody thought of her. So Hannah prayed, and she prayed, and she prayed. Hannah was waiting for a child, but God was waiting for headship in Hannah's life. She wanted a kid, but he wanted submission to her will and plan. Finally, she gets to that place of saying, not my will, but your will be done. God, give me a son, but I'm going to give him back to you to serve as a priest and a prophet. And then bingo, things changed dramatically in her life. God gave her that son, gave her six more children as well. You know, the lesson for us is, we got a huge God. We got, we got a God with huge plans. And for Hannah, huge blessing came her way when? When she decided to submit completely to God's 
will and plan. The only thing standing between you and that huge blessing that God wants to, wants to pour out is your willingness to submit to his will and plan. You might be praying for one child. Maybe God wants to give you seven. You might be praying for one soul. Maybe God wants to give you 7000 You might want $1,000. God wants to give you $70 million. You know, these things aren't difficult for God. You're not going to work up a sweat going through your prayer list. This is easy stuff for him. But to him, the obstacle is, the obstacle to blessing us is will we really be willing to submit to his leadership, his authority in every area of our life? Now, you might desire kids, souls, money, whatever. Those are all good things. God can get glory in those things. What about bad things? Can God get glory in a bad thing? You know, if, if I were to get cancer, for example, could God get glory in it? He absolutely could get glory in that. And you see, if Jesus is really my head, and if you really get glory in something like cancer, then my response should be, Lord, bring it on. If, that's, if you're going to have glory in that, you know, your will be done. Is that weird? No, well, that's called headship. That's called submission. And really, that's what it means to say is, Jesus, no matter what, I want you to be glorified in my life. You see, I need to correctly understand my role. I'm just a body that he can use for his glory. I'm just a, a bod for God, right? What, whatever, whatever he ordains for my life, I submit to it. Whatever he ordains for my life, I want it to bring him glory. And you might say, well, yeah, but what if it doesn't make sense to you? To that I would say, why does it need to make sense to me? I'm not the brains of the outfit. I'm not the head. I'm just the body. He's the head. He's the, he's the brains of the outfit. He's the one who gives the commands. So whatever he ordains for my life, it doesn't need to make sense to me. It doesn't need to be comfy for me. If I'm really clear that he is the head and I'm just the bod, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether he sends the million or the melanoma. It doesn't matter whether it's the billion or the biopsy. It doesn't matter to me because the goal is not my pleasure. The goal is his glory. Amen? Jesus, we thank you for your word. And Lord, there's so much you want to do in our lives. But you're just waiting. You're waiting for, you you won't do something against our will. You love us. You respect the free will you've given us. But God, we want to lay down every plan, purpose, idea that we have. And Lord, we only want to take up again those things that are from you. We just ask you to speak to our hearts, Lord, about any area of our life that is unsubmitted, unsurrendered, where we've refused your headship, your lordship, your authority. And Lord, we give you permission right now to remove that from our life. We don't want that anymore. And Lord, the desires of our heart, whatever that would be, God, we just pray that you would conform that to your will, Lord. You put on our heart those things that that you want for us, and you'd bring them to pass, God, and that you'd have all the glory in that. In Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit valleymetrochurch.com.